calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. And welcome to Black History Month on Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This month, I've got four fantastic new episodes planned for you, and I cannot wait to get into this week's topic, which if you looked at the title of this week's episode, it is Ruby Bridges. I want to give you a few quick little updates that I promise I'm going to get to the story right away. For those of you who listened to the mini episode that came out on Friday, I announced that the very first episode of Mad Gabin with Madigan on Patreon is now available to everyone at the $5 level. And I added a little clip from that episode at the end of the mini on Friday as well. So hopefully you listened, hopefully you enjoyed it, and maybe you decided to join Patreon because of it. And that would be fantastic. I'm excited to start doing more and more of those episodes. And for those of you who are a little bit like, wait, what the fuck is Mad Gavin with Madigan? It's a segment on Patreon where I'm going to answer your questions, give out advice, or talk about some other topics that don't necessarily pertain to the things on the main feed, but some other maybe pop culture stuff or whatever it is that you want my take on or advice on, or maybe it'll be things that I find online that I want to talk about. It's just going to be kind of a little subsequent chat slash advice segment talk show kind of situation. Dorothy, you can't do that right now. I thought it would be a good idea to give Dorothy her toy on the bed to maybe keep her a little bit occupied, but I forgot that she loves to find the squeakers in every toy, and I was like, no, 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 we, we're not doing this during this episode. Anyway, back to the Patreon business. If you want to get those episodes, on top of Mad Gabin with Madigan, there's also an $8 level, which is called the Feminist Faves, and there you get all of the Mad Gabin with Madigan stuff, all of the old episodes from the Angry Feminist Book Club. You get these episodes ad-free, you get them a little bit early usually, and now once a week. I haven't been very good at it the last few weeks because there's just been a lot going on in my life, but it's going to be picking back up this week. I do a little recap episode on Monday or Tuesday after the main feed episode goes up, which is this one. So you will get a little Ruby Bridges recap episode on Patreon. 
And if any of that sounds fun to you, or if you just want to support the show so that I can continue making it, go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and choose a tier that is right for you. And I'll be so happy to see you there. You can also click on the link in the show notes. All right, everyone, let's get into our discussion this week about Ruby Bridges. Before I get started, I just want to say that I got most of my information from Ruby Bridges' memoir, which is called Through My Eyes, which I listened to on Audible, and the production quality of it is fantastic. I highly recommend everyone listen to it. It's fairly short, and there's an interview with Ruby afterwards as well, but there's music involved, there's multiple voice actors, and it was just a really well-put-together audiobook, so I would really encourage anyone to go check that out. Totally not an ad from Audible. I wish they were a sponsor, so Audible, hey, hit me up. And then from that, I did a lot of subsequent research from what I heard in the book. Ruby Bridges was the first black child to attend a formerly whites-only school called William France Elementary School in Louisiana during the New Orleans school desegregation crisis in November of 1960. Ruby was the eldest of five children born to Aben and Lucille Bridges. She would spend a lot of her childhood taking care of her younger siblings, but she also enjoyed jumping rope, playing softball, and climbing trees. When she was four years old, her family moved from Tylertown, Mississippi, where Ruby was born, to New Orleans, Louisiana. In 1960, when Ruby was just six years old, her parents responded to a request from the NAACP looking for students of color to join all-white schools. Ruby was one of just six black children selected to gain access to integrated schools, but two would drop out and three went, on the same day, to different schools. Ruby said later, I was really not aware. I was really not aware that I was going into a white school. My parents never explained it to me. But before we get into the first day that she attended William France, let's get a bit of background into how Ruby and the country got to this point. Ruby was born smack dab in the middle of the civil rights movement. The same year, in fact, as the Supreme Court decision was made in Brown v. Board of Education. Brown v. Board of Education was decided just months before her birth, which rules that the establishment of separate public schools for white children, which black children were barred from attending, was unconstitutional. So, all black students were permitted to attend such schools, but that didn't mean they were welcome. The decision for Brown v. Board of Education goes like this. We come then to the question presented. Does segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities? We believe that it does. Segregation of white and colored children in public schools has a detrimental effect upon the colored children. The impact is greater when it has the sanction of the law, for the policy of separating the races is usually interpreted as denoting the inferiority of the Negro group. A sense of inferiority affects the motivation of a child to learn. Segregation with the sanction of law, therefore, has a tendency to diminish the educational and mental development of Negro children and to deprive them of some of the benefits they would receive in a racially integrated school system. The conclusion reads, We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. The general public in the United States applauded the court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education, but most Southerners decried it, apparently viewing the announcement of the decision as, quote, a day of catastrophe, a Black Monday, a day something like Pearl Harbor, 
give it a rest. Since the South was so against it, progress toward integrating schools there was incredibly slow. American politician and historian Robert G. McCloskey described the reaction in the South as, quote, noisy and stubborn. Certain border states, which had formerly maintained segregated school systems, did integrate, and others permitted the token admission of a few Negro students to schools that had once been racially unmixed. However, the Deep South made no moves to obey the judicial command, and in some districts, there can be no doubt that the desegregation decision hardened resistance to integration proposals. So, though federal law had condemned segregation, state and local governments weren't following the law and enforcing any sort of school integration, letting civil rights activists know that more work was to be done in their fight for equal education. Lawyers from the NAACP had been bringing local lawsuits to court since the 1930s, and they decided to take further action to push integration into southern states. The NAACP attempted to register black students in previously all-white classrooms in cities throughout the South. In 1957, the school board in Little Rock, Arkansas, agreed to comply with the high court's rulings, and a plan was submitted to accomplish gradual integration to the school board by May 24, 1955, which the board unanimously approved. Their plan would be implemented in the fall of 1957 at the start of a new school year. One of these plans was created by Virgil Blossom, which is a great name, I might add, who proposed substantial integration, beginning quickly and extending to all grade levels within a matter of years, very, very quickly. But this proposal was eventually scrapped and replaced with one that was a bit more manageable. The new plan was to integrate one school, Little Rock Central. The second phase of the plan was to open up a few junior high schools for a few black students and the final stage would involve limited desegregation of the city's grade schools at an unspecified time, possibly as late as 1963. The NAACP registered nine black students, who would go on to be referred to as the Little Rock Nine. They were Ernest Green, who was starting his senior year, Elizabeth Eckford, who was 15, Thomas Roberts, a sophomore, Carlotta Wall-Lanier, Terrence Roberts, Minnie Jean Brown, also a sophomore, Gloria Ray Karlmark, 15 years old, Thelma Mothershed Ware, a junior, Melba Patio Beals, and Jefferson Thomas, a sophomore as well. These students were told that they would not be able to participate in extracurricular activities if they transferred to Central, such as football, basketball, or choir. And this was a bummer because a lot of these kids were involved in those sorts of activities. But it seems like either they or their parents felt strongly enough about integration that they were willing to give up those extracurricular activities. And this was a really, really terrifying thing for them because many of these parents' jobs were threatened. These children started being treated differently even before their first day of school. When integration began at Little Rock Central High School on September 4, 1957, the Arkansas National Guard was called in to preserve the peace. But by orders of the governor, they were meant to prevent the black students from entering due to claims that there was imminent danger of tumult, riot, and breach of peace. When the Little Rock Nine showed up for their first day of class at Central High School on September 4, 1957, they were turned away by the Arkansas National Guard. Elizabeth Eckford recalls, They moved closer and closer. Somebody started yelling. I tried to see a friendly face somewhere in the crowd. Someone maybe could help. I looked into the face of an old woman, and it seemed a kind face. But when I looked at her again, she spat on me. These are children, and you spat on them? Just, it's ab... 
As Elizabeth walked toward the school, a mob of girls swarmed around her chanting, Lynch her! Lynch her! Oh, God. In response, Woodrow Wilson Mann, the mayor of Little Rock, asked President Eisenhower to send federal troops to enforce integration and protect the Little Rock Nine. Eisenhower invoked the Insurrection Act of 1807 to enable troops to perform domestic law enforcement, and he ordered the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army to Little Rock and federalized the entire 10,000-member Arkansas National Guard, taking all control away from Governor Faubus. The Little Rock Nine were admitted to Central High School by the end of September in 1957, but the abuse they would endure did not end there. Many of the white students were just horrible to them, as you can imagine. Melba Petillo had acid thrown in her eyes, and on another occasion, a group of white girls trapped her in a bathroom stall and attempted to burn her by dropping pieces of burning paper on her from above. These kids are fucking sadistic. What the fuck is wrong with them? How do you think of this fucked up shit? Minnie Jean recalls an incident where she was taunted by a group of white male students in the cafeteria in December of 1957. She had dropped her lunch, a bowl of chili, onto the boys. She was suspended for six days. Way to go, Minnie Jean. After continual confrontation with white students who bullied her, she was suspended for the rest of the school year and transferred to New Lincoln School in New York City. As for the white students, they were only punished when their offense was both egregious and witnessed by an adult. More action would be taken for the 1958 school year as Governor Faubus had the entire school shut down so that neither white nor black students could attend. It's like, oh, you want black kids to come to my school? Well, I'm going to take the school away. And eventually, more and more of these schools were affected by this. More and more public high schools and other schools were being shut down, all because of Governor Faubus's bullshit. But thankfully, many of these schools were reopened for the fall of 1959 school year, beginning a bit earlier that year in August. This period is referred to as the lost year. That's so unbelievable to me that they were like, I would rather take education away from every single person in my city than let half of the population get a proper education. That is absurd thinking to me and fucking evil. You hurt so many children in the process. But in the fall of 1959, black and white students returned to class and the black students were still not met with kindness upon their return. They still had to struggle to get past mobs to get into school, and once they were inside, they faced further physical and emotional abuse. I read that there are a number of memoirs written by the Little Rock Nine, and there are a lot of great documentaries out there on this subject on YouTube, so I highly recommend you look into this further. But here's a few books that I looked up and I want to suggest to you all if you do want to know more about this story, even though, I don't know, maybe next year I'll do a full episode just on the Little Rock Nine. But Melba Petillo has written a number of books, but the one that I saw most often in my research was Warriors Don't Cry. But there's also March Forward Girl, From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, What is a State of Mind, and I Will Not Fear, My Story of a Lifetime Building Faith Under Fire. For some of the other nine's work, there is Simple Not Easy by Terrence Roberts and A Mighty Long Way, My Journey to Justice at Little Rock Central High School by Carlotta Walls Lanier. And now that we've learned about what was going on before Ruby attended school, let's get back to Ruby Bridges herself and what her experience was like trying to integrate a school. Once Little Rock was accomplished, I guess, 
The NAACP wanted to move its way to Mississippi and Louisiana and further their school integration. The Orleans Parish School Board administered an entrance exam to students at Ruby's school, along with some others, to determine who was eligible to integrate into the New Orleans public school system. Ruby remembers riding uptown to take the test with about another 100 black children, all waiting to be tested. Like I alluded to earlier in the episode, Ruby was one of just six black students to pass this test, even though it was purposefully made very, very tricky. And Ruby said it was very hard in an attempt to keep the test scores low. These children must have been incredibly intelligent. Ruby attended a segregated kindergarten in 1959, But in the summer before her first grade year, her parents were visited by a member of the NAACP. According to her memoir, the people from the NAACP pressured her parents and made them a lot of promises. Ruby's dad was initially reluctant to allow his daughter to attend the school, but her mother felt very strongly that this was a good move in order to give their daughter a better education. This would draw a wedge in their marriage that would only grow as time went on. Lucille also told Avon that to, quote, take this step forward for all African-American children would be of utmost importance. Ruby attended her first day of class at William France Elementary School as the only black student in attendance. As for the other five black students that passed the entrance exam, three parents decided to go against letting their children go to an integrated school, and the other three girls, Leona, Tessie, and Gail, went to McDonough 19 Elementary. These three girls would become known as the McDonough Three. The McDonough Three were escorted to school by marshals and wore yellow armbands signifying integration. And if you want to know more about the McDonough Three, I am going to be chatting about them a little bit in this week's recap in the Feminist Faves level on Patreon, so be sure to check that out. When Lucille and Abon told Ruby that she would not be going back to her old school, she was sad that she wouldn't be able to see any of her friends anymore. She didn't know why she was changing schools. No one ever explained it to her. In the morning, a small group of U.S. Marshals showed up at her house after her mom took much time getting her ready. The Marshals then took Lucille and Ruby to the school in one of their cars. Ruby later learned that they had been carrying guns. When they arrived, the Marshals told Lucille and Ruby that they would all walk in together. They told them to look straight ahead and keep walking. There were barricades, but people were leaning over them and shouting, and there were policemen everywhere. I can't imagine what this must have looked like to a small six-year-old girl. The new school building was much nicer than her old one, and with all the crowds, she figured something very important must be going on. She thought this must be college. As she walked toward the school, she heard a group of girls yelling, Two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate. Ruby, her mother, and four marshals walked hurriedly up the steps to William Franz. Ruby, in a starched white dress with a white ribbon in her hair, as kids waved Confederate flags and white mothers angrily yelled and screamed at them. Once inside, they went up a flight of stairs to the principal's office. There were windows in the room, so everyone walking by could stop and stare at them. Ruby watched white parents rush into the office all day, pointing and jeering at them. Many mothers disrupted classrooms and pulled their kids out of the school as a sign of protest. And state legislators encouraged this as a boycott against integration. Ruby and her mother spent the whole first day stuck in the principal's office, shielding Ruby from the riot that had broken out in the halls. When they left at three, the crowd outside was even bigger and louder. There were reporters and cameras everywhere now, too. The marshals just couldn't keep everyone at bay. There had been loud protests outside of both Ruby's school and McDonough 19 Elementary all day. 
And now high school boys had joined in, carrying signs with terrifying messages on them and changing the words to old hymns to make them very nasty. Ruby also saw a black doll in a small coffin, which really scared her. And then the marshals drove her home. Ruby still had no idea what was going on. She didn't really know what integration was. She didn't even really have a strong idea of what racism was or why these people were so angry at her. No one explained it to her at all. Back on her block, which, funnily enough, was France Street, police set up barricades at each end of the bridge's block. So Lucille wasn't worried about Ruby wanting to go out and play with her friends. When her dad got home that night, he went up to her and called her his brave little Ruby. On her second day of school, she was able to meet her teacher, Mrs. Henry. The whole school was silent. It was only Ruby and this white stranger in this entire school, it seemed. Ruby had never spent time with a white person before, and she felt weary of Mrs. Henry. But thankfully, Mrs. Henry was just the right person for the job, and Lucille was able to sit in the back of the classroom that day as well. Mrs. Barbara Henry had taught in overseas military-dependent schools, which were integrated. She was also from Boston, which had been integrated for quite some time. When she was offered the teaching job at William France, she asked if the school was integrated. The superintendent replied, would that make any difference to you? To which she responded, no. Mrs. Henry was the only white teacher who didn't refuse to teach while a black child was enrolled. Mrs. Henry and Ruby had an entire classroom filled with desks and other items fit for the needs of up to 20 students or so, but it was just her and Ruby. Mrs. Henry felt odd standing in front of the classroom, so she would usually sit with Ruby as she taught. When it came time for lunch, Ruby was made to stay in the classroom, as she wasn't allowed in the cafeteria. She even stayed inside for recess, as the schoolyard was also made off-limits to her. On top of that, every time she needed to use the restroom, a marshal had to escort her to and from her classroom. On the third day of school, Lucille was not permitted to stay for the school day in the back of the classroom. She was told by the marshals that they would take good care of her daughter. Lucille told Ruby not to cry, but she did anyway. Mrs. Henry grew to love Ruby, the shy girl who always walked hesitantly into the classroom. Mrs. Henry would compliment her outfit to make her feel special, she said, because she was. And Ruby became like her little shadow, moving up to the blackboard with Mrs. Henry whenever she did. But even though they had started a bit of a routine, the protests and angry crowds outside had not gone away. The irate mothers were given the nickname the cheerleaders, and they were straight up cruel. One mother would yell at Ruby that she was going to poison her every day as she walked into school. The things these mothers were saying were so bad that they didn't share direct quotes in newspapers, and they would blur out the sound and dub over it on TV. Which Sucks because then the rest of the world wasn't seeing how absolutely terrible these grown adult women were being to this actual child. The protests made national news. An author, John Steinbeck, went to see the protests as he was traveling across the country with his dog, Charlie. In his book, Travels with Charlie, he wrote, No newspaper printed the words these women shouted, but they only indicated that they were rude or even obscene. On television, the soundtrack was blurred or crowd noises were cut off. But I have heard the words, bestial, dirty, and degenerate. In a long and unprotected life, I have already seen and heard the vomits of demonic humans. Why then did these screams fill me with awesome and nauseating pain? He also wrote, Then two black cars full of big men in light-colored felt hats pulled up in front of the school. 
four big federal sheriffs got out of the cars, and from one they pulled out the smallest black girl ever, in a starched bright white dress, with new white shoes on her feet, so small they almost looked round. Her face and her little legs were very black against all that white. The child was not looking at the howling crowd, but from her side, the whites of her eyes, like that of a frightened fawn, and the baby was even smaller because the men were so big. Ruby never saw or met John Steinbeck, but it's pretty amazing that he was able to witness this moment in history. For parents who agreed with integration, they were still terrified of the cheerleaders, not wanting to put their kids and the rest of their families in danger. But a few took the risk. Lloyd Foreman, a Methodist minister, was convinced that integration was right, and he was determined to keep his daughter Pam at William France Elementary. The minister walked Pam to and from school every day, and they too received a tongue lashing from the cheerleaders and other protesters. They became obsessed with targeting the Foremans. The Gabriels were another brave family. Parents Daisy and Jim had several kids, and one was a first grader like Ruby, named Yolanda. But Ruby doesn't ever remember seeing Yolanda at school. For the first three weeks that Yolanda attended school alongside Ruby, the Gabriels' home was damaged. Hecklers gathered outside threatening to hurt the Gabriel kids. The husband was about to lose his job. Police had to set up barricades at their house as well, and a kind neighbor offered to drive Yolanda and Daisy to school every day. The Gabriels eventually gave up and took Yolanda out of the school. Not only that, they moved out of the South altogether and went north. These protests would become full-on riots, with bricks thrown, burning crosses, and screaming abuse. These parents were trying to scare people away from integration and intimidate others from doing what was right. In the first week, the tension seemed to build each day. White people assaulted black people in broad daylight. Vandals broke store windows and stole what they could. Extra police were brought in to bring order, on the order of the mayor, who called for calm. This enraged segregationists, feeling betrayed by their own government. By the time the Thanksgiving holiday was reached, the protests seemed to die down. But the parents promised that the protests would begin once again once classes returned, if integration would continue. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Bridges started becoming ostracized by their community for their part in integration. Ruby's father had been fired because of it. His employer, W.E. Smith, told a reporter, I wouldn't have an N-word working for me with a child in a white school, would you? He admitted that Abon had worked for him for four years and that his work was quality, but that whites in the area had told him that they would boycott his business if he continued to employ Abon Bridges. Ruby's grandparents also lost their jobs as sharecroppers. Thankfully, since their plight was so heavily televised, people started sending money to their family, which Ruby said helped immensely. Presents for Ruby also came. The packages were addressed to her, but she had to share with her siblings. Her mom said, they can't all be for you. I'm sure Lucille was worried about how Ruby's new fame would affect her other children and wanted them to feel important too. And Ruby was famous, as she even received a letter from Eleanor Roosevelt. Her note was Lucille's favorite. Letters would come from all around the world. 
Unfortunately, Hurricane Bessie in 1965 would destroy many of these keepsakes, including her letter from Eleanor Roosevelt and her father's purple heart that he had earned from the war for bravery. When it was time to go back to school, her neighbors came by all the time to check on them, and at night they would keep watch of the house. Some babysat or helped Ruby get ready for school. They would wait with her for the marshal's car to arrive, and once she got in, men would walk with it like a procession on its way to William France, keeping an eye out for any trouble on the way. One neighbor, who owned a house painting business, offered Avon a job. In December, the crowd in front of the school was finally much smaller. The people were still loud and angry, but, but at least there were less of them. On December 5th, attendance at the school reached a height for the year at 18 students. But Ruby still didn't know at the time that there were other children in the same school building as her. She had never seen a single other child roaming the halls. Mrs. Henry was very upset with the principal when she discovered that the other students were being kept out of her sight. After the holiday, Ruby and Mrs. Henry settled into a nice little routine. Ruby said she remembers Mrs. Henry being more like a best friend than an ordinary teacher. She made Ruby feel very special and she was very loving. For recess, since Ruby couldn't join the other kids outside, they would push the desks out of the way and do jumping jacks together for exercise. Mrs. Henry was able to get permission for them to walk in the schoolyard a couple of times as well, which felt strange to Ruby without any other kids around. Ruby liked Mrs. Henry so much that she started picking up on the way that she spoke. Mrs. Henry was from Boston, and Ruby started to pick up her accent. Mrs. Henry and her husband had just moved to Louisiana at the start of the school year, Ruby began to notice that she didn't sound like her brother and sister anymore and believes this is because Mrs. Henry's influence on her that year. She would also imitate Mrs. Henry. They became very attached to each other. Mrs. Henry later said, Ruby was a smart, sensitive person. It was a joy to have her at school each day and to have her as, well, my child. I was newly married and had no children of my own at the time, and I think Ruby became my child. She was sweet, beautiful, and so brave. It was such an anxious time, and I often wondered how that little girl could come to school each day and be as relaxed and trusting as she was. Mrs. Henry would also speak on how the entire school administration seemed to be against her student. The principal, who she described as a rigid and prejudiced woman, wouldn't lift a finger to make things more comfortable for Ruby. They were both treated as unwelcomed outsiders. The other teachers in the teacher's lounge first ignored Mrs. Henry. Then they began to make unpleasant remarks about the fact that she was willing to teach a black child. One day, Mrs. Henry walked by another classroom, the hidden other first grade, and discovered three white students talking amongst themselves. Their teacher was just sitting in the room listening to the radio. The teachers at William France didn't seem to be doing any teaching. They preferred a year of not teaching, possibly as their own form of protest. So fucked up. Mrs. Henry was also kept in the dark on many things regarding Ruby. She wasn't allowed to reach out to Ruby's family, though she thought Lucille was very beautiful and very, very brave herself. She admired the risk she took as a mother to better the life of Ruby and the rest of her children. Mrs. Henry's husband supported what she was doing, but outside of him, there were very few others in her life that even knew where she was teaching, and she didn't trust anyone enough to share that information. Mrs. Henry remembers Ruby being confused about integration, and she remembers explaining it to her more than once. She told her that white people in the South had gotten used to living a certain way, and that they were having trouble changing. She said that people become afraid of anyone who they think is really different from them. 
She also wanted Ruby to know that nothing regarding integration was her fault. I'm sure it would feel that way to a six-year-old Ruby who saw grown adults screaming at her daily. Mrs. Henry told Ruby that the other children would come back to school eventually. Mrs. Henry had a little section in Ruby's memoir, Through My Eyes, and in it, she pointed out why Ruby's story is so important to children. They see, through her, that children can do great, important, and brave things too. They have a hero who is like them, and it makes them know that they could be heroes too. Ruby would also be seen by a counselor during her first year at William France, a man named Robert Coles, a child psychiatrist who was also, funnily enough, from Boston. He would meet with Ruby weekly in her home, as well as with the McDonough Three and some of the other white children who attended the integrated schools. I'm glad that someone saw the importance in the children's mental health at this time. It seems pretty revolutionary to me. He would later write the children's book, The Story of Ruby, to acquaint other children with Ruby's story, but I'll get into that further into the episode. Ruby learned as an adult that it had been a relative of Robert Coles that had purchased the clothing for Ruby to wear on her first week of school. Her parents couldn't have afforded the dresses, socks, and shoes documented in the photographs of her from that day. Dr. Robert Coles had been in the Air Force, stationed outside of New Orleans. He had come upon the mob outside of William France one morning and offered his help. Coles recorded their interviews on tape. Ruby would draw pictures for him, and they would talk about them afterward. She enjoyed her time with Dr. Cole. To her, an important man was coming to see her, and that made her feel special. She also liked his wife. She would often come along with her husband for Ruby's visits, and his wife always brought her something special. This would totally be against the rules today, but I think surrounding Ruby with as many loving people as they could was the best thing for her. The Bridges family enlightened the Coles as well. Lucille taught Mrs. Cole how to cook gumbo, and the two women became really good friends. After writing so many articles and books with Ruby in them, he thought that she had held up well through the whole experience, but he was always curious about what kept her going. In The Moral of Children, Coles writes, Ruby had a will and used it to make an ethical choice. She demonstrated moral stamina. She possessed honor and courage. Though Ruby was handling the stress of her new life fairly well, there were some cracks in the facade. At night, she had terrible nightmares and she would run to her mother for comfort. Whenever this happened, her mom would ask Ruby if she had said her prayers before bed the night before. If the answer was no, then Lucille would have Ruby go back to her room and say her prayers. It always worked. Her mother and pastor had always told her to pray for her enemies and those who do you wrong, so she prayed for the evil white people terrorizing her at school. Lunchtime was also like a living nightmare for Ruby. She ate in that classroom by herself while Mrs. Henry would take her lunch break in the teacher's lounge. It was a lonely time for her. She could see the marshal sitting outside too, and she's just alone in this classroom by herself. As time went on, she began, she began to struggle eating. At first, she blamed it on the food her mother had packed, too many peanut butter sandwiches. Then, she began to wish that she could go to the cafeteria with the other children. She could smell the food they were eating, and she wanted in. In her six-year-old brain, she decided that she would hide her lunch in the classroom, and that somehow would help her gain access to the cafeteria. Of course, roaches and mice began to join her in class, and the janitor discovered Ruby's hidden treasures. When Mrs. Henry heard about this, she started eating her meals with Ruby in the classroom. She felt bad that she had missed so many meals. This began happening at home, too. All Ruby wanted to eat were potato chips and soda. Her parents told Dr. Coles about it, and he did his best to counsel her through it. Thankfully, by the end of the school year, her appetite returned. 
Mrs. Henry felt terribly when she found the sandwiches. She wanted to keep it her little secret, but somehow word spread around. All Ruby ever told her was that she didn't like the sandwiches her mother made, so Mrs. Henry wrote a note to Lucille asking her to make something else for Ruby's lunch. Near the end of first grade, Mrs. Henry and Ruby finally had some company. Some of the white children started coming back to school, and Ruby got to meet with them and talk with them on a couple occasions. Ruby said in her memoir that even at this point, she knew nothing of racism or racial integration. She had picked up bits and pieces over the last few months from overhearing the adults around her talking, but nothing was clear. It became more clear to her on the schoolyard one day, on a day she was allowed to be out there with the white children, when she asked a white boy to play with her. He said, I can't play with you. My mommy said not to because you're an N-word. And through my eyes, Ruby said that in that moment, it all made sense to her. How devastating this revelation must have been for a child. She finally realized that everything had happened because she was black. She said she wasn't angry at the boy, just stunned. His mother had told him not to, and he was obeying her. She said that she would have done the same thing if her mother had told her not to do something. Come June, the school year was over, and thankfully, it ended quietly. She didn't want to leave Mrs. Henry, but thought maybe she would be her teacher in the fall again, or maybe even forever. She had given Ruby excellent grades, but the school's principal had wanted to change them. He said that since Ruby had been given so much individual attention that the grades weren't accurate. Well, whose fault is that that she had so much undivided attention, ma'am? Mrs. Henry couldn't believe how mean the principal was. Still upset about the white children in the school being hidden from Ruby, she told the principal that keeping those kids apart from Ruby was against the law. She threatened to call the superintendent to talk about it, which finally made the principal give in, but she did not force the other first grade teacher to include Ruby in her class. Well then, tell the superintendent about her too! Instead, the white children would come to Mrs. Henry's classroom for part of each day, which Mrs. Henry saw as progress. On Ruby's first day of second grade, no marshals drove her to school. Ruby was driven to class via taxi for the last few months of first grade, and it would be the same this year. When she got to school, it was quiet. There were no protesters yelling and screaming. She made her way toward her classroom from the year before, but someone then veered her toward another classroom. When she walked in, she saw at least 20 other kids, and there were even a few other black children too. She was upset to learn that Mrs. Henry would not be her teacher that year. Instead, another white woman would be her teacher. Ruby had felt abandoned and heartbroken. Ruby later learned that Mrs. Henry had returned to Boston over the summer, expecting a baby in the fall, and she and her husband decided to stay. Also, it had been made pretty clear by William France Elementary that she would not be invited back the next year. Mrs. Henry was not sad to leave New Orleans. The whole ordeal with integration had been exhausting, but she would miss Ruby very, very much. She thought of Ruby for years. She had a photo of her, one with her two front teeth missing, that she kept in a drawer of her bureau. She said she was like an invisible part of her family. She would tell her children about Ruby, feeling she had to keep the memory alive. This adjustment was very difficult for Ruby. Everything was different than the year prior. Packages stopped coming in the mail. There were no more agents visiting her house, and though she still saw Dr. Coles sometimes, it wasn't as frequent as before. A change in routine can be very hard for children, especially one that has been through a traumatic event, or multiple traumatic events, like Ruby. She said that no one even talked about the previous year, like it never happened. 
but I'm sure Ruby had a lot of questions she needed answered in order to feel secure enough to move forward. It also didn't help that Ruby thought her second grade teacher was mean to her and that she didn't like her very much. The teacher would taunt her for her hint of a Boston accent she had picked up from Mrs. Henry when she would read aloud in class. Ruby said she tried for months to sound like the other kids again, but she would never get back her full Southern drawl. From second grade on, she felt different from everyone else in her class. After that, word about Ruby Bridges fell away. When Ruby was in seventh grade, her parents separated. They had never gotten over their disagreement on whether or not Ruby should have been allowed to go to an integrated school. Ruby and her siblings moved with their mother to the housing projects while her dad stayed in the house. She missed her dad a lot. He died when she was 24 years old from a heart attack. Ruby graduated from William France and went into an integrated high school. When Ruby was 18 years old, she learned that the famous American painter Norman Rockwell had made her the subject of one of his pieces called The Problem We All Live With. The painting was made in 1964, and it is still considered to be one of the most iconic images of the civil rights movement. The painting shows six-year-old Ruby, clad in her outfit from her first day at William France, walking with marshals into the school. On the wall behind her, there's graffiti with racial slurs and the letters KKK, along with smashed tomatoes thrown against the wall. While the subject of the painting was obviously inspired by Ruby Bridges, Rockwell used a girl from his neighborhood, Linda Gunn, as a model for the painting, as well as her cousin, Anita. Rockwell received much hate mail after this painting went out into the world, and one letter called him a race traitor. It's unbelievable that Ruby had never known that she was the subject of such an important painting. But when she met with President Barack Obama in 2011, she suggested hanging the painting in the White House, in the hallway outside of the Oval Office. When the president and Ruby met, he told her, I think it's fair to say that if it hadn't been for you guys, I might not be here and we wouldn't be looking at this together. When Ruby watched a PBS documentary on the civil rights movement with her mother as a young adult, her mother had to point out to her that some of the footage used was of her. It took Ruby a long time to own the first part of her life, but she felt carried along by something bigger than she was. But sometimes she felt bitter about the whole thing. Why did she have to go through it? Why was she chosen? Why did she have to go through it alone? But now, she feels, she knows it was meant to be that way. She really wanted to go to college after high school, but her family didn't have the money to send her. She and her mother had always held the belief that doors would fly open for her at universities, thanks for all that she did when she was a child. But this wouldn't happen. Thankfully, eventually she was given two honorary degrees in her adult years. Instead, Ruby studied travel and tourism and became one of the first black people to work for American Express in New Orleans. She worked as a travel agent for 15 years, which allowed her to travel all over the world, her favorite part of the job. As a young adult, she met a man named Malcolm Hall, and they married in 1984, and they had four sons, Sean, Christopher, Craig, and a fourth publicly unnamed son. Once her sons had been born, she began to feel that she wanted to find a bigger purpose for her life. Her brother Milton had been killed in the 90s during a drug-related shooting, which left Ruby shaken. But, she says, his death woke her up and made her look at her own life in a new perspective. She began to see that what she had accomplished as a child in the 60s was meaningful and important and saw her experience as something that could help others, particularly kids like her brother Milton, who were in trouble. She said in her book, It's funny how misfortune can bring new blessings. After this, her life completely changed. Her first order of business was returning to William France Elementary, where her brother Milton's children now attended school, and she became a student liaison. 
William France was located in the poor inner city, and where it had once been filled to the brim with white students, it now contained mostly children of color. As with most inner city schools, William France lacked funding to keep up with the current standards for schooling and education. Ruby felt that these kids were being segregated all over again. Why are there not better resources for them? This feeling of injustice for these children led her to create the Ruby Bridges Foundation in 1999. The Ruby Bridges Foundation promotes the values of tolerance, respect, and appreciation of all differences. Describing the group's mission, Ruby said, Racism is a grown-up disease, and we must stop using our children to spread it. The proceeds from the book, The Story of Ruby Bridges by Dr. Robert Coles, restarted after-school classes at France. They hired teachers from multiple art programs. They started a ballet class, an African dance class, a class on manners and etiquette. Her hope was to bring these sorts of classes to other inner-city schools to help as many people as she could discover their passions and what they excel at. She believed that all inner-city schools should become great schools. All of them should be good enough to attract a healthy racial mix, which Ruby believed improved education for everybody. As much as it is important to learn from school textbooks, it's just as important to learn from your fellow classmates and pupils. Ruby traveled all over the country for public appearances for school visits and book signings. She believes strongly in the power of education, and she speaks with them about race. In classrooms, she reads the book The Story of Ruby Bridges, and with older students, she gives a screening of the Disney Channel original movie entitled Ruby Bridges, a film that I loved growing up, and I think it made quite an impact on me, and starts a discussion with them about it. Many times, kids would tell her about their racial problems in their own lives. When the scary subject of race is broached, kids want to talk and talk. It's very satisfying, Ruby wrote. Ruby's fame regenerated in 1995 when Dr. Cole's book was first published, and even more so when the movie was made about her. Now, Ruby Bridges became a household name once again. One of the people who discovered Dr. Cole's book was Mrs. Barbara Henry. When she saw the book, she was able to contact Ruby through the publisher, and the two were reunited. This was one of the greatest joys of Ruby's life. They reunited on a special episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show in 1996, not having seen each other in 35 years. After that, they stayed in touch and started doing book signings together as well. She, of course, was also in touch with Robert Coles again, too. They, too, hadn't seen each other in 30 years, and in those years, he had written a lot about Ruby, but never singularly about her story, until the picture book became a reality. Ruby hadn't been aware of the writing he had done about her in the years since first grade, but she felt that he was telling her story for her until she was old enough and ready enough to tell it herself, and she was thankful for that. She said of her new job as a public speaker at the end of the book, In all of this, I feel my part is just to trust in the Lord and step out of the way. She also said, I now know that experience comes to us for a purpose, and if we follow the guidance of the Spirit within us, we will probably find that the purpose is a good one. There are now two schools named after Ruby, one in Alameda, California, and another in Woodenville, Washington. In 2000, on the 40th anniversary of Ruby starting school at William France, she returned to the building for a walkthrough, and Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder made her an honorary Deputy U.S. Marshal. Unfortunately, like so many others, Ruby and her family would lose their home in eastern New Orleans in 2005 during Hurricane Katrina. The hurricane also severely damaged William France. The building was restored, and in 2010, Ruby, along with her former brave white classmate Pam Foreman Testrowit, celebrated the 50-year anniversary with the reunion. 
A statue of Ruby was erected in the courtyard of William France, and when asked what she hopes children feel when they see the statue, she said, I think kids will look at it and think to themselves, I can do something great too. Kids can do anything, and I want them to be able to see themselves in the statue. Hopefully it will remind them that they can change the world. Most recently, in January of 2024, Ruby published another picture book entitled Dear Ruby, Here Are Hearts. It's a compilation of letters from concerned young adults about today's issues such as bullying, climate change, gun violence, and racism. Ruby then writes a response to each of these letters, leaving the young readers feeling inspired and helping them embrace their courage to be brave, bold, and confident. Ruby said of the book, I've heard their hearts, and now share those hearts with you. These pages truly speak to the power of children. And that is the wonderful story of Ruby Bridges. She is still alive and with us today. And I think especially when we speak about these people who made such a monumental change in our lives as Americans, and we realize that these people are still alive. It was not that long ago. It was not even 100 years ago that these things happened. I think that's one of the most important lessons that we need to take away still from Black History Month. Because I think a lot of people have this idea in their heads that we could never return to a place like that or that it happened so long ago and the country is so different now. But hearing these stories and still looking at the world around me, I see that we still have a long ways to go. And I see why it is so important to continue to share these stories so that hopefully we can prevent something terrible like segregation ever again. I am not above the Republican Party from throwing us some Jim Crow laws at some point. Next week, I am going to be covering the Harlem Renaissance. I am so excited about it, and I can't wait for all of you to listen to that episode. But before I let you go, I want to remind you just one more time that if you want more content and you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or click the link in the show notes and choose a tier that works for you. I really, really appreciate all of your love and support. But if you want to give me even more of your love, you can go to that little purple Apple podcast app if you have an iPhone and leave me a five star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. And I will love you forever. But if you listen on Spotify and want to rate over there, you can do that too. All right. I am off to a four-year-old's birthday party in the rain. It's going to be a great day. And that's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Happy Black History Month. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.